My ideas come from my life. Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan-Bever, and each week I'll be speaking with the most innovative ideators in culture and trying to figure out how they make their creative decisions. This week, I'm talking to Ruigi Villasenor, who went from stealing and flipping luxury clothes to founding his own streetwear brand, Rude. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. In 2012, a teenager in Los Angeles had an idea. Luigi Villasenor had a vision of streetwear, with all its requisite nods to hip-hop and skate culture, expressed through the lens of Americana. This dynamic juxtaposition, which would fuel Luigi's brand, Rude, was the product of his unusual global rearing. By the time he was 12, he had lived in the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, and Hong Kong. But it was sitting in art class in Southern California that his vision would start to come into focus. So you grew up in the Middle East and Hong Kong and the Philippines um, before coming to America at age nine. How did that experience of growing up globally sort of inform your perception of America? Um, I think it's... uh... It started off as me looking at America as if it was um, everyone lived in even Stevens homes and top-down Mercedes and red convertibles and all that. And um, so I had a, it created a dream for me. It created a dream for me to, to an aspiration to, to sort of make it in America, get to America and, and build that. But um, on a... As that's happening, I didn't realize I was creating a, a more global perspective and things. And growing up in Saudi, seeing, you know, all the, the cultural things of community-based eating, um, going to to um, to the mosques to pray with, with my family. And, um, you know, that sort of created a multidimensional perspective in life, you know, and then seeing the poverty in, in my country from us living, we lived in like a slight higher bit hill. And then once you go down, it would be called the squatters. And that was like off, off thing for us. My parents would be like, you can't come down there. But for us, we were like, no, that's where the, that's where the culture is. We're going down there, you know? So these sort of created a, uh, a melting pot in a way for us, for me to just see a perspective in what, um, what I could do in America. And, um, you know, also like I, I find myself referencing that because America's built on the, the history of America isn't as far predates doesn't predate as, as like the I don't know any empires you could think of. You know, there's it's really such a new country. You know, so our empires are essentially the companies that have been built. These are the kingdoms. You know, so my references when I, before I came to America was the kingdoms that were built in America. So. These, I look at these iconography and these different logos and stuff, and I see that as a, a, a statement and a flag, an opportunity to sort of make one of my own and be, to create a kingdom in America, you know? So your father was an architect and your mother was a tailor. How did their professional lives inform your ambition? Uh, I knew not to do what they were doing. 
<laughs> um, no, their professional lives, I think it's created a, a, a an extreme byproduct, you know? I, I saw both the, the good and the bad of both sides. Um, my father taught to think in an archetypal way, and my mother taught me to feel and, and, and feel the fabric, feel emotions, channel emotions, and um, sort of storytell through through garments. And I remember she used to do my um, my projects for me, super artistic. I, I had this like one project where we had to sketch out irrigation. And I came in there with a full on 3D presentation with an irrigation system, with drawings and all these water things. And my classmates were like, how did you do that? But it was all my mother. And I realized I was like, soon I was gonna have to like actually learn how to do this. When you arrived in America, did you have a sense that this was going to be sort of the final, the final stop? No, 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 no. I was, um, I remember I first came out the airplane and I was like, wow, it smells exactly like the, the boxes that they, my dad would bring back. You know, I would, I would geek over little toys and little shoes and stuff. But um, no, I thought it was just a, 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 a ground to sort of create a different new framework for us, you know, sort of build a new home, new friends, new things for the family. And how do you feel like that experience of constantly being on the move, creating new friends, having to start over, how has that sort of affected you now as an adult? I don't see attachments in things that I build or things that I do. I think I, I see them for the moment and what they stand for. And I know the effects of it, but, you know, I come into things with for honesty and integrity with, you know, storytelling. But I don't, I know that things are, aren't certain, and um, I'm very aware of that. You, uh, when you arrived in America, you barely spoke any English. Zero. By the time you graduated high school, you graduated valedictorian. How did you close that chasm? My dad used to, used to write questionnaires and just things, thought-provoking things for breakfast, because you'd leave very early, like four o'clock in the morning. So we'd miss him for breakfast. So you would see little notes, little excerpts that just like sort of, just for me to think. And then but when I get back home, he'd ask me certain questions. Like, so what do you think about that? You know? So he was always enticing me to like, always educate myself. And, you know, I remember when we first arrived, he, he told us that in a non-negative route that we were a, a little bit behind and we needed to work a little harder than anyone else. And that excited me. I was like, what, imagine like I was in fourth grade or third grade. I was so scared that I wasn't going to be good at any language. I was like, well, I left too early in the Philippines for me to, 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 under, to understand the full literature. I don't know Arabic that well. You know, like these are things that I'm like, oh, I'm never going to be good at anything. So I put these challenges for myself and it sort of translated into almost everything in my life, you know, in even in our office, when we work, I, I like to keep a competitive field between all of us. You know, like I'll sit next to even a design intern and I'll challenge him to like, who could do a better graphic? Because that's what I think the best comes out of people when you challenge them, you know? You mentioned that your dad was leaving at four in the morning to work. Was he an architect? No, in no, 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 no. He, I mean, we were, we were, my father was doing different things just to help the family, you know, we do, um, he'd help out, do catering and, you know, for, what is it, bat mitzvahs. And um, he was helper for people, you know, like he basically left his passion to dedicate 
and give a better future for his family. You know, so then he landed back into the medical field shortly after. What was the living situation for you guys when you got here? Oh, we were living in my aunt's living room. It's four of us living in the living room. And then we started, you know, like usual young stuff. My cousins and I weren't, we weren't getting along. And I was like, well, we need to get a place. Like, I can't live here anymore. My father was able to strap some cash together. We lived in a, um, a one-bedroom apartment up in, in the valley. And it's quite the time of my life. I'm sure. So um, I know in the beginning of high school, you start drawing more sort of uh, aggressively and uh, pervasively. Um, what, what was it that you were drawing and what were you trying to articulate through that? I was on, I had a portfolio that actually got stolen, but it was all, uh, I, I studied uh, faces. I wanted to do um, realism and I was exploring different emotions through like oil-based medium, um, oil pastel, even oil painting. Uh, but yeah, I, I, but you know, looking back at it when I was in art class, I, I was that kid that would sit next to any person that was quote unquote talented and I would sit next to them and I would emulate their methods in less than, you know, five, 10 minutes. And I would sit there and do their exact technique next to them. And I would leave the, the drawing next to them and I would go back and I would sit next to my professor or whatever. And I would talk to her about, I don't know, different art history stuff. I was that annoying kid. Where does that competitiveness come from? To that same young kid that when my dad said, you have to be everyone and work 10 times harder. And I was like, well, I got to do this, you know? Like, well, you know, if it's if it's not that, then what is, you know, what's the meaning of life for me? You know, he sort of engraved that to me. It's like compete, like if you want to be, he raises to sort of not see anything else but be the best of it. Though his father may have instilled a strong work ethic in him, Ruigi had to find a place to apply it. Utilizing emergent internet platforms like MySpace, Ruigi found a community around streetwear and began to connect with like-minded individuals, including then-unknowns like ASAP Rocky and Travis Scott. But he still didn't have much of a game plan. Being an entrepreneur, as, as a kid, was that something that you were bent on or were, were you more focused on being a creative? Um, or did you really give any thought to what the future of your career was going to be? No, 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 no. I had, um, I had no idea what I was going to be. I was actually in 10th grade and all my friends are, you know, preparing for the next future and whatever their life plans were. And I'm sitting there like, well, I don't have a bank account. I don't have a college fund. Like, well, we're going to have to figure this out, you know? And at the time I didn't have the proper means to even drive or any of that. So all the kids were sort of progressing way before me. And I'm like, well, I got to hustle. That's like really the only thing I got to do. So I figured out it, it was sort of a perfect timing, but also just intuitively, I sort of created this, you know, I figured out that I can't get a job because of my paper situation. You know, I was at the time I didn't have the right paperwork to get a job. The family was undocumented. Yeah, we were, you know, we were just at that scenario at that time. And so I was like, well, I got to make sure Something, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my father, you know, my father and my mother were situated, but myself, I just was not. And so I was like, well, I got to figure out how to make this right, you know? So I remember I, I applied at a, um, uh, this clothing store and they're like, oh, we really love you. We got to do this. And I'm like, but you got to submit all the little paperwork and stuff. And I'm like, 
yeah, peace. See you later. Like, that's cool, but I'm not going. Um, so I figured I'm like, well, if I don't make anything happen, I'm just going to look at my life like, well, where did it all go? So that that competitiveness kicked in and I was like, let's rock and roll. So I figured out through through timing that there was a, a new culture emerging, you know, through the growth of MySpace and the rapid growth of social media and the internet revolution, it, it was like perfect timing. You know, I think we can all call that yeah. timeline to be like everything just sort of clicked in, you know, like subcultures were emerging. They were wanting to communicate global. So it was a perfect blend of that. What was your connection to fashion at that point? To make money, to, to sort of, to survive. Survival, that's really what my connection to, to fashion is. It's different if it's for fun and it's different if you need to survive. You know, like you put a, like you put a, a trained fighter and you put a, a starving kid from, from my country, I'm putting my money on that starving kid. I don't care what it takes because that man will do whatever it takes to win, you know? And that's where I feel like I defer from everyone else. You know, I come, I know what is like that, you know, so I'm, I come with no fear. You mentioned, you know, that was such a pivotal time when all of a sudden, you know, when I was growing up, I'm a little older than you. Everything was completely discreet, right? Like if you were doing something in New York, you had no idea what was going on in LA. Um, but the advent of MySpace really changed everything. And all of a sudden people are networking and you ended up connecting with several people who would go on to become real ar architects of global, you know, culture. Um, who, who were those people and how did you make those connections? I mean, we were in, I remember me and Bari were on uh, MySpace showing each other clothes. Um, Rocky's whole crew was emerging in, in New York. I remember I strapped, what is it, $500 and sold all my clothes. I bought the ticket and I had $100 in my pocket, cash, and I flew to New York City. And I stayed in my, a buddy of mine, Curtains' couch. You know who Curtains is? Yeah, yeah, of course. Great dude. Um, I stayed in his couch and I was with 40 ounce and at that time I was cooking up the entire New York City in these parties, introduced me to all the right people. And I saw something I'd never seen. I was in, I was in 12th grade, I think. And what were your parents saying when you were like, yeah, I'm gonna buy a ticket to go to New York and stay? They were like, what are all these meetings? And we, we laugh about it at lunch because my dad used to like, he's a very strict like military father. Like he'd be like, what are all these meetings for? Like you keep taking these meetings, meetings, meetings. And even if, they, even if they weren't meetings, I knew in my head that I had to put it in this realm for me to really believe it. You know, it's like, I tell my guys in the offices, like when we design, Whatever cap you put onto your design is the only thing we'll reach. You know, it's like if you wanted to only make 30 t-shirts or 30 jacket designs, by the time you reach 30, you already feel like you fulfilled it. You know, so to me, I'm like, I don't want to have a cap. So when I when I would approach these meetings and all the oh, just like a little meetup of mm -hmm. I took them in my head as a meeting, like a proper meeting. But that was like, well, eventually it'll become that, you know? So I would explain to my dad, like, even if it was just like us meeting at, I don't know, a quick little chips, chips, fish and chips, or I don't know, like some coffee or something, I would treat that as a real serious meeting. And I would tell that to my father, like, I got a serious meeting, you know? But to me, it, would, it was um, foundational things. As you're pursuing these relationships and this networking, what are your ambitions 
in terms of like, how are you going to turn this into money or turn this into business? Yeah, well, that time, money wasn't the thing. I wanted, um, I wanted information. I wanted a lot of information. I wanted to know how to really conduct proper business and um, just live a better. I mean, at the time, I, I didn't need much, you know? Like, I mean, like, my father would give me $20 and I would be happy as you could be. Like, you know, I think about that now. I'm like, what did I do with that? Like, how, did I, how was I able to find joy in that, you know? But that's really, like, it, it built such a great foundation for me because then I was able to see the people and build real serious relationship with the people. You know, I needed, and I tell this, you know, I got I have friends who who, um, who do you know different proper business for large companies and it's their job to land deals. And as I'm growing and I'm I'm you know we're learning from each other and I'm telling them I'm like you have to build a relationship and a rapport with someone just without business or money on the line. It's just as if you and I are just becoming friends, you know. And that's sort of how I came about with building the business. I became friends with them more than anything, which you know. In this whole entire world, relationship is everything. At what point did you start considering really making product? When I saw those guys making a ton of money and like, remember when they were doing those hat drops and I was like, wait a minute, I'm doing it all wrong. I'm like, I need to figure it out. You know, and I was sleeping on a futon. Like my our situation, it was a two bedroom apartment. This is the family? Family. And my sister and I were sleeping in a, in a room and there's this like lap, like a computer side into it. So I was like, well, I'm going to make this my bedroom. Put a futon on it. And at the time I was dating a girl who I thought was, you know, the love of my life. And I was like, well, I got to make something happen to impress her. So I remember my back was hurting because a futon was like what? Like a foam, right? And so she would layer it up with like six blankets and just be like, and I saw that as like my restoration hardware. You know, I was like, well, this is amazing. I'm like, I get to sleep on a comfy bed now. And, you know, and that little little cut had so much of what I'm building now. Like everything, almost. I wish I could take some drawings that I put on there that was like really vital to what we're doing in business now. Sleeping on couches, connecting with cool kids, and taking meetings will get the ball rolling, but it's only a fraction of what it takes to actually operate a business. And this is something Ruigi learned as he jumped blindly into his first foray in fashion, the hard way. What were the first products that you started to make? Um, everyone says it's the bandana tees. Actually not. It's, I, had a, I had like a different t-shirt that I started with. It's like a sun shirt. And this is a real valuable thing. When people make products, they forget to put a real equation into the mathematical problem, right? What I think what kids tend to do is one t-shirt, one graphic equals consumer. You know, you're missing a real serious like thing there to where I feel like you're counting the buy right away. You know, I think with the way the world works is you have to, one, create, obviously, a great product. And you can't expect people to love things the way you love it. You know, and I think it's, that's one of the most valuable things my father's ever told me. It's like there's new variables in line. There's, you know, socioeconomics. There's, there's real global problems. And there's so many different brands that's putting out stuff. It's like you can't just 
expect things to be bought. It's like, if you are coming at it with that angle, then you're already, you know, 10, 20 steps behind. It's like, I think the most important thing is, is you, you come with a real honest story and um, some skill, I guess. So where did you sell these first t-shirts? It didn't sell. That's really what I was going to. Um, I made 300 t-shirts. I like, I borrowed money from all my friends and that was the best example of, our, oh my God, I got to really pay these dudes back. And I got 300 t-shirts that one person bought it. I understand prior to the advent of Root, there was another brand that was very short-lived. Right. Primitive. It was, wow. Yeah. So tell me about how did you come up with that or land on that? And how did it all go sideways? There was this brand called Alien NYC and they were building something in New York City. And I thought they were so cool. They were like a collaborate. They were like a uh, a click, a f- like a little fashion click that were taking photos of fits and all that. And it was so tight. And I'm like, well, I got to build something in L.A. that could feel like that, where we're just sort of a collective. Well, one, you could bring and tie up like a whole culture that understands fashion or something, or like they all get along together. You just basically are creating a, a hub for people to get together and at all these friends that we were vintage hunting. And I knew that we were doing something special because no one worked. Like there's vintage and then there's like, like Versace, Johnny Versace vintage, you know, like real valuable pieces. And at the time it was right before the cusp of that, which I think my, my team was sort of a instrumental to sort of supplying these goods, you know? So we got together, we started taking photos and we were connecting with so many people um, and then we were vintage hunting. Come to find out that store is being built um, just off of Ventura um, as we're trying to emerge this like click thing. Um, and it was a skate, a skate shop. I think it was ran by P-Rod or something. And they were, they were making noise. They were doing these little, you know, sort of similar to the hundreds, you know, they were doing little barbecues and stuff. And at the time it was a, the, the, growth of um, skate culture, street skate culture that you just couldn't go against at that moment, you know? And at the time it was growing and growing and I was like, well, I can't do this. Like I can't go against someone that sort of just used my name and created that, you know? Not that if it was intentional or whatever it is, don't really care. But you you hadn't trademarked it or anything? Yeah, it, it taught me a real life lesson that you need to trademark your ideas, you know? You need to copyright and trademark your ideas, so. Um, that was the very first start of that. Where are you getting the information about all of this vintage stuff? Like what's valuable, you know? No, we created the market. Okay. So I, in, in high school, I used to steal clothes. I'm just going to be honest. I used to steal clothes in stores. I used to put them under my pants. I would wear <laughs> baggy ass pants and I would steal clothes because all the rich kids in my school wanted them. And I was like, well, I could be the supplier and buy it for you. And they were like, well, how are you getting it? I'm like... Don't worry, I got, you know, I got the plug, all that. So I would steal it and sell it to the kids at a discounted cost. After a while, you know, you build all these things. You're like, well, there's a business here. There's there's a reason why these people are buying it. They're, they don't even care what the design is. They're buying it for the brand. Let's say, what, what, what were the hot brands? Ninth grade, we were in SBs, Chrome Hearts, wearing True Religions, you know, all that. Like, I wish, I think I could find some pictures in ninth grade of me in old Chrome. And I was... Putting him on my backpack, true religions, you know, like that lucky, you know, and I look back at it, I look at it now, I'm like, oh, it's just the same cycle, you know? 
and the SB game was mega. So I took that and I thought to myself, well, if if I could sell this garment, because in my eyes, it was just a product that I was just going to take and sell. I didn't see it for the brand, but I'm like, well, okay, let me try something different. So I, what I did was I thrifted a jacket and I put a label on it. Put a label on it. I sold it for 10x. When you say a label, you mean like from a luxury house? I just snatched one of the labels from one of the vintage things. I took a Saint Laurent label and I put it on a red, what is it, L.L. Bean jacket? No joke. Red L.L. Bean jacket probably cost me like two bucks from Goodwill. Put that in there and I sold it for like 400 bucks to a kid. After that, I never thought of it the same. I was like, I'm not selling anything but premium and I'm not selling anything that is like that could be seen as anything below. So then after that, I was like, I have to build a brand. So how long between that happening and the sort of inception for Rude? Um, I still ran with the team. I hung out with Taz Arnold. I hung out with the Tisa crew. Um, I saw that famous photo of um, VA in, in Paris, and we were all rooting for Taz because we were all just like this subculture that was was sort of doing something so different, you know? We were in Stephen Sprouse, Vuitton. We were wearing, like, OG Pierre Cardin, you know? Just things that had value that people just sort of forgot that is essentially a museum piece because there's such a, like, a, a capsule of, of, of such a specific time and design. And we started collecting them. I found different vendors in, um, in swap meets that sold... Kazal sunglasses and Linda Farrow sunglasses, and we started buying them all out. At the time, they were just $25, $50. And, you know, as to anything, you control the market, you get, to, you get to sort of create the price point for it. You know, then came out Lady Gaga. Um, a, a, that former partner of mine sold, like, some sunglasses to someone. I sold it to, to Gaga and just created a whole, like, sort of time period in, in streetwear fashion, which came to be the vintage resurgence. How much of your interest in this is predicated on the business and how much of it is you just being into it as a kid? I think it's 75-25. 75 loving the fact that I'm contributing to the culture Mm -hmm. and 25 that I was able to put some money in my pocket and, you know, go out to eat with my girlfriend at the time, you know? Um, But... It, it 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 really was starting something, and you know, looking back at it right now, um, I think that's how high fashion really made a gateway into just full throttle being an everyday streetwear thing. You go from the resurgence of vintage, then you want to know more about the high end brands, and you participate. Then the people that collectively sort of sold these things and participated, decided, well, why don't we just create our own? And this is what you see now as the the outcome of that tension that's being built. It's like when people become the communicator, they start to realize they can be the information as well. You know? To take his vision to the next level, Ruigi would have to think ambitiously and strategically. And that inspiration birthed the bandana tee, an all-over print t-shirt that would spark his brand and change his life.
How do you arrive at the idea for the bandana tea? I came back from New York. I saw that they were referencing a lot of West Coast culture, NWA to be specific, you know, sort of have this. And I realized that there's no one in the West Coast that's going to claim that. And other, otherwise, it'll be the East Coast taking it. Um, so I came back home and I realized that I needed to create something similar to that. And having a, a artistic background, I was thinking about how I can redefine the classic, which is the bandana. I didn't see a bandana as gang-related. I saw it as a, a Western print. I saw it as a, um, as a, a Hindu term, you know, for, uh, I, I forget, it's for, it's actually the marriage of, it's the, the act of tying the bandana is the marriage of like this unity. And through that, we use that bandana as a way to tie up sort of everything, all the ideas. It was interesting when you did this, it struck me because it was a time where, you know, all over print had been extremely hot in that 2008 period. But by 2011, 2012, trends were going in different ways. But you sort of went, you sort of zigged when everyone else was zagging and put out this all over print with the, the bandana. And it was so, it just grabbed people. Did you have any thought about sort of larger trends or, or was it just like, no, this is the thing and I'm just going to do it? I did. I did. I, how I designed at that moment, that time period when it was a 10 skew brand or five to 10 skew brand, um, you tie up a story, you tie up a real cultural um, happening, like a, a real phenomenon in, so, in socially, and you, you tie it up into a storyline. You know, there was um, the West Coast thing worked. So I was like, well, for it to continue to work, I have to use different things that are happening, like little phenomenons, you know, like if it was COVID, imagine how bad of a brand I would have been. And I created a COVID t-shirt or something. And um, so, yeah, I looped all of it in. And after that, I tried different prints. And I knew that um, as I was going, I was repeating things that um, I, I founded the brand with, which then led to the, the creation of a brand. At this point, you're selling these items. Is there? Is it under a brand name? No, it wasn't. It was a bandana tea. And where are you selling it? Online. Online. And I was hustling it off of my friends. Um, Guillermo, at the time, gave me Guillermo from 424. He took me on a car ride. And he was like, look, you're making all these bandana teas. They're hot. But are you going to start to sell it? He took a ride in his CLS around Fairfax. And I was like, eh, probably not. You know, like I, you know, like I don't, I don't come for money. So if I get to be fresher than anyone without having to spend anything, I'm going to hang on to that as much as I could. How does the bandana tee end up on the radar of Kendrick's stylist? Kendrick is, is coming up with new music. I remember I had a, a friend in high school who told me that this is the guy. And I was listening to him like, wow, well, this is a little too, I don't, I don't know. Like, this is a little too, like, lyrical for me. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And I started to feel it. I could intuitively, you feel that someone is, you can feel when someone wants it bad, you know? And then that, I'm, I'm, I'm a big energy guy. If you translate to the world, your energies, you're going to make it. Chances are you're going to make it. Yeah. And they, he, he gave out that aura. And I was like, this is a once in a lifetime legendary moment. Like I got to participate. Met his um, stylist at the time. And I also met Dave, Dave Free. Okay. You know, all that. Mm -hmm. It all came 
in perfect, you know, in perfect timing. And they were like, well, we don't have anything to wear for this. Like, what do we do? This is the 2012 BET Awards? Yeah. Shirts came out. And uh, I remember I was in my, uh, my sister's, it was my mom's old forerunner, like 97 forerunner. They were driving to Fairfax and it had like all the little stains on the, the chairs and all that. And I, I was connected to my PayPal and I, I remember I was crying in the, in the front, the front, because uh, I mean, I, I didn't even have a bank account. You know, I didn't even know where I was going to forward that money to. So I was making, I made like 100, 150,000, I think, that day or 200,000. I was, I was crying. I was like, you know, this, you know, and I, I always, till this day, I always thank God for everything. I was like, I love this feeling too, too much that I never want to let it go. And that was the worst thinking I had at that moment. Why is that? My father taught me in, in the most joyous of your time in your life, take a step back, analyze, and don't be too happy because the way the world works is in balance. The happiest you get, the pendulum swings. So you always want to be maintained mentally. And that changed my whole entire perspective and how I view things. You know, I'm of the moment. I appreciate everything, but I don't see them for what they are, more than what they are. You know, they are a part of my life. They're a, a growth, part of my story and my growth, but it doesn't define, like, my happiness. You've made now hundreds of thousands of dollars for the first time ever. Yeah. And getting a little out over your skis. Yeah. What happened? First thing I thought of was like, this futon is gone. <laughs> it's gone. So I, I, I told my dad, I'm like, look, we got to get it. We got to get a three bedroom. We, I'm, I can't get a spot yet, but let's get a three bedroom. Let's figure it out. After that, what's, what I say about that kid that saw those iconic brands? I went to go meet those iconic brands. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I, I go back to this, this saying, it's like, you don't, you can't understand quality until you taste quality, right? This, this Sushi Jiro saying, it was like talking about, you, you can't serve quality if you've never consumed it. You know, so then I thought about it. I'm like, well, I've never really consumed luxury. So let's go in that store and buy that luxury. So we, I did the Rolex. I did a, I did a Pagoda CL SL280, like my first car. You know, didn't even have a license. I was like, I want that car. I want to be Ralph Lauren in the SL280. I did that. Then I realized, oh, I got to, I got to pay for production. I got to make clothes. I have to live. This is now a company. And you ran, the, I ran the whole thing dry. You know, so I, I thought about it. I was like, well, okay. I went a little under. How can I recoup? One, I wasn't going to sell what I purchased already because I, I felt that that was defeat. It was a step backwards. And I could never take a step backwards. It was always forward. So, and I, I don't live with any regrets. So I thought about it. I'm like, well, okay, cool. Let's, let's figure it out. Then I created a business model in my head that I didn't even know I was doing. I started to pre-sell things. I was like, well, there's a demand for something else. Well, for this thing still, let's do a new colorway. Same thing as like my buddies in New York are doing with different, same hat, different colorways. Let's re-freak a new colorway. Did a pre-sell schedule. Boom, hit another one, hit another lick with another, with the same bandana tee. So then I, f I made the mistake already. I took it back and I was like, wait, no, nah, we have to reinvest it into the company. And then it was able to grow. 
How are you even learning about just like sourcing these materials, getting the pr- stuff printed, filming, shipping, all that kind of stuff? I figured it out. I knew that information is all I needed. And if you keep asking, you shall receive. You know, I, I met this guy named Mario in the Valley. He was a screen printer and I, I really coined it all to him. He gave me all the information on screen printing, every single thing he knew. He saw me as like his son or something. And I would sit there with him every day after school and I would learn photo transferring, squidgy cleaning. It taught me discipline. I really, I really understood the artistry of just the craft. And mind you, he was a guy that was printing janitor shirts or like, you know, mechanic shirts for small companies. So screen printing, wherever, wherever you do it, it's, still screen printing yeah you know whether you're making clothes for gucci or you're making clothes for the janitors it's still the same screen printing it's like chances are if uh, there's more romanticism with a man actually doing the, the craft you know and i thought about that and i was like well this is luxury you know i'm like i'm you i always find a a gateway in everything it's like you have to find what is that in the midst of uh in the midst of chaos, there's always opportunity. So with the chaos happening with all these different things in the brand, I was like, well, maybe the opportunity here is to explain that this is luxury. The fact that it's done by hand, it's done by a real person. And you really explore how to build a brand. At this point, have you done the internship with Sean Sampson? I was doing the internship and I was making money and I was like, well, why don't I buy a sec? Why don't I rent a section of the, the studio and just to keep my bandanas here and figure it out. So I rented a section of his studio and he had this wall and he was building storylines for his collections. He was showing in London and he was showing different storylines and I would be there and I would learn and I'd be like, okay, learning how to design is much more important than knowing how to design, you know, like learning to build the, the full world in it. And I saw it and I was like, oh, wait, it's much simpler than what I thought it was. Sean's career, he's been sort of a journeyman working at other houses. Um, your aspiration, though, was different. You wanted to have your own brand. Yeah. Did you make that as a conscious decision that I don't want to be a creative director elsewhere. I want to own my own business and work for myself. Or was that just sort of the circumstances that you were? Yeah, I wanted to be. I, I, I go back to this thinking of the kid that didn't have much in the Philippines and wherever I was in the world. I, I don't have the same passion and connection as I to to brands that kids typically love. You know, I, I never grew up admiring a pair of Nikes. I never grew up admiring a pair of sambas. All I was was a kid that enjoyed things that I was, that we could afford. That's different, you know? And I admired larger brands. You know, Nike to me was great, but that was, it was a time, it was just building its, its brand, you know? It's, you know, people forget that Nike's still a fairly young brand. And I think we put it at such a pedestal as if it was a Greek stone landed from meteors and boom, Nike's the greatest. It's like, it's still just, Phil Knight's still alive. You know, that's, we have to sort of, my goal now as as a designer is to just maybe ding a little bit of like bell in someone's head that it's like, we can't fall, we can't fall victim to just consumption of, of, 
of all this as if it was like a, a, a saint, you know? It's like, we just need to consume things that is necessary. Yeah, I didn't have that, I didn't have that thinking. So I saw Ralph Lauren, that's all I saw. Cause that's the stuff that my dad was wearing. He was wearing loafers. And so then I was like, oh my God, Ralph Lauren is the ultimate thing. It was global, it was worldly. It, it spoke about the American dream. And I thought about it, I was like, well, that's who I wanna be. Like, why don't I create a, a serious brand? Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in person, and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. Now back to the story. The singular success of the bandana tea and quickly blowing through all the money that he had made off of it provided valuable lessons for Ruigi. If he was truly going to be successful, then he would have to tighten up his bookkeeping and broaden his vision. And he'd have to build a community too. So Ruigi put everything he'd learned and all his mentorship together and came up with a brand imbued with the totality of his experience, Rude. So how did you get from, from having these sort of successful drops without really any sort of brand association, just individual products, to wrapping your head around the idea of a, of a brand and, that, and then that brand being Rude? Um. You, you, it was influencer seeding before influencer seeding ever existed. So it was organic. People loved it. They bought it. They wore it. Um, um, and I realized if I want to live off of this for the rest of my life or for when I'm older and beyond living at home, I have to get really official. You know, I have to build a brand for people to to love and gravitate to. So scrap all the ideas for progress and you can't prog- you can't continue building a, a home without the proper foundation. So I really built a foundational thing that I knew was going to take time. And if it worked, it was going to work. So I, at, at the midst of me loving everything that I'm having, I was able to pull it back. I was like, I'm no longer selling my bandana t-shirts. I know it's, I know it's great. It's great money. It, it does well. But I'm no longer doing that because the more you steer yourself to be that, you'll become that. You will only be that, you know, and the more people get to know me, don't just keep referencing that, you know, even to, to now. You know? I was going to say, I mean, that, that's got to be a tough thing to know that you have this one note that people love. If you beat that drum too many times in a row, the well will run dry. But it's also got to be very hard when you're living fairly hand to mouth to knowingly walk away from the well that still has... Right some water in it. Yeah, that's that's the Kobe mentality. I mean, you know, just leave, you know, leave while you're hot. Yeah. Leave while you're hot. So I, I thought to myself, yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't put, build a brand off of one shirt and I can't keep selling this because then you lose the allure of it. And I studied the watch game properly. I understand the scarcity. I understood just marketing in, in, in any sense. Um, and I pulled it and I, bet on the visions I've had when I was really trying to build a brand. Went back to the kid that did that first t-shirt that didn't sell. Then I really 
built the DNAs of a brand. You start, and you know, think kids think there's this magical thing. There really isn't anything. It's just a drive and under and, and knowledge. You know, you can only you can only speak of what you know, and the more you know, the more you can talk about things. Who are you talking to about these ideas around the brand and what what you want to make and how you're going to do it? I had, to, I had my mentors at the time. I had you know Guillermo at the time. I had um, I had this guy Rashid Watt, Rashid Young, and a couple guys that were coming up. You know, Dave Free. You know, different different guys that I was um, referencing to. Just I asked so many questions. I, I still do. I just want to know their path. Not saying that it would be my path, but you know, it's like it's nice to feel that people are sort of going through the same problems or same predicaments as you. So what was the first item that was released under the Rude brand? Sugarland. And I was dating a girl from Texas and I traveled to Texas and I found out about Sugarland. Found out about this place, Sugarland, Texas. And I was like, okay, I don't have a hit right now. So I pulled elements from highest selling things and I combined it into a product and I created a Sugarland tea. Surely enough, boom, and I put a story behind it of a, a real American story of like someone that wants to do more for themselves, but is stuck within the means of their socioeconomics and their, their community. And Sugarland felt like such a bittersweet term or like a story to a book. So I created that, I created Sugarland Tees, and, and I had a friend who now became a art director for Milk Studios, and he was like, look, I love the concept. Let's make a film out of this. We'll dump, you know, 200,000 or something into a, a short film with you. And I was like, well, cool, I'll do it. You know, like, man, if it gets the story out, let's do it. You add layers to things. And once that layer of storyline came into that thing, then it became another bandanity for me. So in the, the wake of uh, the Sugarland drop, you've now sort of, I think, figured out some things about the design and how to, how to approach what products to make or how to make them. Um, and, you know, through trial and error, you're starting to work out the kinks of distribution and fulfillment and all of that stuff. Where did you start to see those things pay off? Um, we collaborated with the stores to, to market the goods for it to sell. So it was free marketing for us in a way, because they bought the goods, so now they have to sell it. So we are equally in bed with each other to have to make sure that it sells. So I was seeing a more global impact with the clothes. You know, in essence, can communicate to a store that I can communicate to, you know, or the parties at the time can communicate to a consumer that I can communicate to. So you, you, you get the sense of growth through that. It's the community you're building people that are participating in wearing it. Yeah, that's, that's really how I was able to do it. After finding his calling, tasting both success and failure, Luigi was facing a make-or-break moment. He had learned from his mistakes and Rude was beginning to take off, but each win was accompanied by a new challenge. To continue growing and evolving, he had to go back to the well and tap into what made him want to start in the first place. So the appetite for Rude starts to grow exponentially. And all of a sudden you start having fulfillment issues. 
What is that like to, you know, get over the excitement of everybody wants a piece of this to seeing kids complaining on Instagram and, you know, where's my package and they don't ever send the stuff, that kind of thing. The bullying was um, too extreme. I mean, but you have, you have to see it in a sense as this isn't bullying. This is someone that spent money with you, that trusted your vision, that felt that they had a connection with you and your garment. And they're just upset that you aren't able to fulfill that. But at the time I was like, oh man, these kids want to fight me. They want to, you know, they want to kill me. They want to, they want to destroy me. They want to, you know, I took it personally. And I, I, I felt to myself, I'm like, well, this is the make it or break it moment for a brand. How good is it if I can't deliver it? And I, um, I got serious. I got real serious with the business. I sat down and studied and studied for hours, watched YouTube videos. I read books. I, I asked my friends that were doing slightly better. I, I did all, everything that I could to understand how do we deliver these products fast, efficient, and cheaper than anyone. Yeah. And we're still, we're still here to this day figuring it out. So what were the next steps of growth for Rude? Finding production channels. I remember I had, I had, um, I traveled, I was in Paris and a buyer, um, a buyer from Barney's gave me an opportunity to meet. I was like, oh my God, Barney's, I have to go. I was pulling my luggage to the hotel lobby and they told me, you have 15 minutes and I sat there and I gave the pitch to the clothes and I was pulling it. And I remember I had them feel it and I was delicate about it. You know, like really showed that I care about these clothes. Next day, they wrote me an order, the biggest order that I had to date. And I was like, Whoa, I got Barney's. And I had this massive order. I'm looking at it like, oh, my God, I'm fantasizing about what I'm going to buy with this this order and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, how do I minimize as much as I could spend on this? Found a production guy in Turkey. And I was like, here, produce all this. The worst decision I ever made. Shipped all of it. If everything fit wrong, everything was wrong. These are real serious growing pains. I was like, oh my God, this is not going to sell. This isn't the wash. This is not even my label. This is not even my graphic, let alone the fit. I was like, well, how's I told the story so romantically. And I, Serving up trash, you know. So I'm like, I got to live with this. I mean, I had to apologize. We we're able to to sort of negotiate a deal. As to anything, these are people they negotiated a deal for me to recoup. I went back to LA, gathered up the right people, and I got some friends to help me. We went to work, hired the right manufacturers, hired the right production company. I redid the entire thing. That's probably uh, quarter million. I had to eat that. I was like, whoa. You know, at that time, I was like, whoa. What am I going to do with these goods? But I, again, I won't sell it. So you, f- you find people that are watching and are passionate about, like, what I'm doing. And we, we collided and we created, you know, sort of this a machine that could function now. How, how many people are now working at Root? Four. Four. That's kind of exponential growth. Do you remember what year you topped a million in top line? 2017. And, and ballpark, how was 2020? 2020, we did a little over 18, I think, 18, 20. It's incredible. Thank you. In 2020, did about 
just shy of 20, 20 million top line revenue. You know, what are your goals for the business over the next two or three years? I guess as I'm, I'm proceeding with my career, I'm, I'm really thinking about what it all means to me. You know, what, whether I'm, I am the brand or Root is the brand. You know, it's very important to me that I find happiness in what I do. Uh, so that's something for me to assess. You know, I think it's, um, it's about, at the end of it all, it, it's always about the kid that was laying on the futon and, or, or the kid that was in that middle seat in the back of the plane headed to the Philippines, and, oh, from the Philippines to America. And like, whoever can, can tap to that and can, can reach that is the only person that could really decide, and that's me. You know, and that's, I think, that's where my goals lie, you know, is where I would be the happiest. One of the challenges when you scale a business is, you know, in many ways, at its, at its inception, Rude was a very singular expression of your personality. It's now the expression of 20 people's personalities. How do you approach managing, you know, first of all, just that number of people, but then second of all, that number of people working in synchronicity with your vision for the brand? Uh, I mean, it's easy. I, was, I, I knew that they couldn't understand the real emotions that I derived from when I designed. So what you do is you, you treat it like a, an engine, you know? It, it, they, they function, but I'm the oil, I'm the, the, I'm the oil to this engine. It's until I build this, this world for it, it, the, it, the engine is fast. It could be the fastest engine, fastest Ferrari engine, but without gas, that car can't move forward. So I figured out that every season that I have these guys that are like, you know, technically sound and they're all amazing for what they do, but I'm the storyline to the whole thing. I'm the gasoline for the, the, the Ferrari to function. We are on the sort of tail end of a global pandemic that I think neither one of us ever expected would happen in our uh, lives. Like, what was the biggest curveball that the pandemic threw to you as a as a apparel designer? I, I, I think it was we were moving and enjoying everything too much. I was that thing that my dad said to, like, take a moment to step back as if before you as you're submerging in all this love. I think we all collectively were just travel, pop-ups, fashion week, let's celebrate, let's film everywhere, let's go. It became a, it became a part of our routine. You, we became addicted to it. It was, the progress was too fast. We all knew it felt too, too much too good. There was so many celebrations everywhere, different different Coachellas. It was legendary. But at the moment, also, it felt a little bit like, you know, you're stepping on the car gas. You're like, oh, my God, I'm going so fast. But I'm kind of like no control. It was no control. And it's important. It's important to have, you know, I'd rather have a slow and steady, uh, slow and steady than a rapid growth. And I think it just, it, it was an inevitable problem that basically blossomed to gifts. You know, to, to reevaluate the business, reevaluate what's most important. How did it change you? 
Um, I look back at his restaurants. Um, I think the people that um, in restaurants, the people who focused on the quality of what they were serving, did better than those who you know tried to fight pot, fire with fire. You know, you go, got to go back to to the foundation of things. So for me, I, I really reassessed what it meant for me to move forward with the brand, what my attach, attachments are to the brand, and what I want out of this, you know, and systematically, like how we were doing things wrong in the business sense. You know? Like, you can see if something is going to hit the wall. Like, you just have to take a step back. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Idea Generation Podcast, featuring Ruigi Villasenor. We hope his story shows that in every failure lies an opportunity. And if you can think creatively and strategically, each misstep can still get you that much closer to your goal. Big thanks to our sponsors at Shopify. If you're looking to start your own online store, check out shopify.com ideas and become your own boss today. What is success? Success to me is happiness. <laughs>